Good morning, Mercy House. I'm Austin, and uh, I'm on staff here at the church. And so this morning, we, uh, if you're just joining us, we are going through Luke uh, chapter 4, as you just heard read, and we are going through the book of Luke this semester, uh, looking at this, these fundamental questions of, of who is Jesus and how do I follow him? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And who is Jesus? Is he uh, a wise teacher that had some great truths about life and, and we can learn some things from him? Or, or was he uh, some kind of mystic and, and had some special enlightenment? Or was he a liberator, a, a political revolutionary who's going to overthrow the systems of oppression? Those are good questions. We're going to see something about who Jesus is this morning as we look at how Jesus reveals himself here through the word. So a little bit of backstory for those of you who are just joining us, that <clears throat> Jesus, uh, just before this, was uh, coming down being baptized by John the Baptist. So he had this big, John has this ministry, he's baptizing all these people, and Jesus comes down and he's baptized. Except when he gets baptized, the, the heavens open up, uh, the spirit descends in a form of a dove, it says, and this voice proclaims from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Not your typical baptism. I don't know if you've been to many. I don't know how your baptism was like. That didn't happen at mine. So this is, this is unusual. So at first, we've had that kind of dramatic. And then Jesus goes off into the wilderness and spends 40 days fasting and praying, preparing himself for what is to come. And at the end of that 40 days, Satan comes to him to tempt him. And, and begins questioning his identity and tempting him. And Jesus refutes him with the word of God and by the power of the Spirit. But here he is now, at 30 years old, beginning his ministry. Now, if you're thinking, oh, I'm still trying to figure my life out, I don't know what I'm going to do, and, and who I'm going to end up with, and all these questions, and oh, I'm already 23. It's okay. Jesus is having a major career change here at 30 uh, to begin his, his ministry. So, if you're following along with me, in verse 14, Jesus is coming out of the desert in the time of temptation. And he's returning, it says, returning in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. This is in northern Israel. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he's gaining a reputation for himself. Uh, he's teaching in the synagogues. And over and over we see people amazed that he, he teaches with authority, they say. They're, they're impressed and awed by him. Uh, during this time might have been when the wedding at Cana happened. So uh, if you know that story in John, he changes a bunch of water into wine at this, at this wedding. Uh, and there are probably some healings that have happened at this time too. So word is getting out. Like, this guy is something special. And then, verse 16, he came to Nazareth. Now, if you're not familiar, Jesus is also known as Jesus of Nazareth. This is his hometown. Probably about 400 people Okay, in this village, uh, where his mother's family is from. So Mary is from Nazareth. Uh, so this is his friends, his relatives, everybody he grew up with is here in this town. And I don't know what kind of place you're from. I grew up in California in a suburb, uh, which started about 30,000, 40,000 people, is now well over 100,000 people. And we thought of that as like kind of small town existence. <laughs> Some of you are from towns here where there's 50 of you and it's all two families. So you might have a better sense of what Jesus is experiencing here <laughs> than, than I do. 
And it's not even particularly well known from the villages, right? It's not like the, the scenic, wonderful one that everybody wants to go visit, that, that cute, charming little village. Uh, in John, it, it gets dissed on here. Um, Philip and Nathaniel are talking, and he says, we found the Messiah from Nazareth. And Philip goes, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? He's like in disbelief, like, Nazareth? Really? That place? So this is where Jesus is ending up, wandering around Galilee, ends up in Nazareth. And here he is on this day. It's a Sabbath day. Comes around once a week. And if you, unless you're in Jerusalem and you can go to the temple, then you go to the local synagogue. And the, the, the Torah the, or the prophets are opened and read. They read from the scriptures. And then there's teaching. And so here we are. Jesus is going uh, to, the, to the synagogue. And maybe he's gotten this reputation has gone around, right? They've heard, oh, yeah, Jesus, he's, he's been teaching all these places. Have you heard all the stories? And maybe they, you've, um, in chapter 2, Luke accounts for us when Jesus is a, a young child. He stays in Jerusalem, even when his parents leave, uh, which freaks them out a bit. <laughs> they lose him for a couple days. Uh, but he hangs out in the temple, learning with, uh, from all the, the teachers there, right? So, so he already, this is not totally new for him, right? This isn't like a, those of you who go into college, you know, wanting to study engineering and you come out like a poetry major or something. This is not like that. This is like things have been going on in his life to, to showing this is where he was going to end up. So they hand him the scroll on this day. Uh, this is what ancient scrolls look like. Uh, so you got two rolls of paper, well, one long roll with two, um, two rods, and you'd have to roll through it, right? You, you scroll through the scroll, kind of like you guys do in your you know, news feeds. So you scroll through the scroll. Jesus handed this giant scroll. Book of Isaiah is one of the longest books in the Bible. So huge. And he scrolls towards the very end. Okay, it's Isaiah chapter 61. And he opens it up. And he's, he's standing. Everyone's seated around on the floor, listening. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls the scroll back up, hands it back to the attendant, and he sits down, which was customary teaching for rabbi. This would be better if you were also all seated on the floor, because then you could see me, but... He sits down, all eyes are fixed on him. What is he going to say next? And looking out at his friends and family, people he's known all his life, he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Huh. What? Isn't this the son of Joseph? Isn't this the one that, that we grew up with playing in the dirt? It, what? This? This is the anointed one? That Isaiah was talking about 800 years before this? What? This Jesus? So the context of this passage, if you're not as shocked as they might have been, is that Isaiah is writing... This is back in the, in the 8th century. Okay? He's writing to the Israelites, telling them that because of your corruption, because of the, the, the sin and the idolatry and all of the abuses in your society, God is going to bring justice. And that's going to look like you being captured and taken into exile. 
but then I'm going to bring about salvation. I'm going to redeem you out of exile. I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. So he's giving them this, this bad news, right? They're going to go in exile, and then he's giving them some good news, that God is going to make everything all right. But this isn't just restoration in terms of, oh, you know, we're going to uh, take the kingdom back and we're going to have our nice little kingdom there on, on the side of the Mediterranean. This is a much bigger view in mind here. So Isaiah ch uh, chapter 60, so just before this, verse 19, says, the sun shall be no more, okay, in that day. The sun shall be no more, your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. All right, so this is like cosmic proportions, right? It's not just like, oh, and you'll all have nice houses, and your vineyards will be full, and it'll be great. You'll be protected from your enemies. This is like, you won't need the sun anymore, because my glory is going to be your light. It's a, very, it's a much bigger image than just some kind of political revolution. And if you've recognized this verse or this imagery, it's because we also have it in the book of Revelation right, as the image of the new heavens and new earth, this new city, Jerusalem. The hope that we have is that God is going to bring this about. So this is the context of this proclamation. And how is God going to accomplish this? Who is going to accomplish it? In verse 16 of chapter 60, uh, in Isaiah, it says, you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So this, this anointed one who's going to bring about this salvation, who's going to bring about this, this liberty for captives and sight to the blind, is himself the Lord. And so we're, we're getting this answer here of who is this Jesus? He is the Christ, the Messiah. That's what this word anointed literally means here. So in, 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 the, uh, in the, the Greek uh, that he's referencing here, this verb is ekrisen, which is where we, it means was anointed or has been anointed. This is where we get our word Christos, right? Christos literally just means anointed one. So all throughout the Old Testament, uh, this word Christos was used to translate this word uh, Mashiach, which is how we, where we get Messiah, right? So the Christ is the Messiah, right? This is, these are just the synonyms, right? Two words for the same, same thing. And so we often think about Christ as like a surname, right? Jesus Christ, like, I'm Austin Kopak, you know, or, or even like Jesus of Nazareth, like, well, which Jesus? Uh, the one from Nazareth, right? Which Jesus are you talking about? Oh yeah, Jesus Christ, that, that one, right? You gotta understand this, this term, this idea that the Christ, the Messiah, is carrying with it millennia of baggage, right? It's, it's carrying all of this weight about who this one is, his identity as the Messiah, the anointed one of God. But what is he been anointed for, right? What, he, what has he been given this special calling being set aside for? He says to proclaim the good news. This word, uh, euangelizo or euangelion, it's just the word we translate gospel, right? So Mercy asks you to hear us talk all the time about the gospel, the gospel. Because we're, we're talking about this, this gospel. And this isn't a new uh, idea, even at the time. This idea of bringing good news has a special function, 
right? This isn't just generically good news. So in Isaiah, he, he talks about this several times in, in chapter 52. He says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Right? That, that is the good news that Isaiah is proclaiming. Your God reigns. Which in the Greco-Roman context also had some significance. See, when C- the, the devotees of Caesar Augustus would apply these same kind of terms to him, there's one, uh, one uh, quote or description of Caesar from some of these, these uh, worshipers, and it says, the birthday of the God, right? So Caesar Augustus is the Roman emperor. The, the birthday of the God, that's what they call him, marked the beginning of good news through him the same word, right? That, that it was good news that Caesar Augustus was God and king of the universe, right? Over all the known world, that he, he, he's the one who brings peace. He's the one who brings prosperity. Caesar Augustus, God, is good news. So this is the context in which Jesus is coming and saying, I am the one who proclaims good news, and what is that good news itself? I could have hinted at this already, but it's not just some kind of program for social renewal or even some kind of mystical knowledge, right? Follow these steps and you too can be spiritual. But in Acts, the disciples, uh, in Acts chapter 5, disciples say that the, they proclaim the good news that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And so the, the good news that Jesus is coming to proclaim as the Messiah is that he is the Messiah. Right? You see, it's a little, seems a bit circular, right? But he is the anointed one who's come to proclaim the good news that he is the anointed one. Which means he's the fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes and dreams for thousands of years. This one who would come and bring about this beautiful eschatological vision in which God is going to make all things new and that he would enable this reality. So what are some of the implications for, for this claim that Jesus is the Christ? There are a couple of different ways that this passage has typically been read. Uh, some have read it as meaning merely social. So this is like a, a political thing, and Jesus is saying, you know, we're going to alleviate poverty, and we're going to correct oppression, and we're going we're gonna to heal people, and... It's going to be great. Life's going to be better for everyone. Uh, other people have read this as being merely spiritual, right? God is going to rescue us, and we're going to go off to heaven, and who cares about all the rest of this, right? And it's just uh, it's spiritual poverty and spiritual this, and, and none of the rest of the actual real poverty or <laughs> real oppression actually matters. But I think the, the, the kingship of Jesus doesn't allow us those options. It's a claim about his kingship over all of created realities, seen and unseen, spiritual and material. And we see this throughout his ministry. In Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist is asking, are you, the, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? And this is his response. Jesus says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preach to them. So this proclamation that Jesus is the anointed Messiah, the the one they've been waiting for, brings all of these 
transformations around him. It affects everything around him. And even uh, in, in Luke 9, it says, they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel, this good news, and healing everywhere. So this reign of Jesus as king, as Messiah, affects every aspect of reality. So we talked about last week how God deals with these ultimate evils of sin, structure, and Satan, to which all of creation is in bondage. And so if this is just a merely spiritual, otherworldly thing, then what relevance does it have to us? How does it deal with the, all of our, the suffering that we experience in the world? Right? Does God care about any of that? His good creation that he made? Has he, or has he just going to abandon it? But if it's just social, and it's just some reforms right now, it's going to make life a little better temporarily, that's not sufficient. It's not sufficient to deal with the real root of the problem, the, the center of our human existence, which is this brokenness, which is our sin. It can't transform the human heart. But the gospel changes everything. The, the good news that Jesus is this messianic king, the son of David, makes him king not just of a nation or a people, but of the whole universe. These aren't, it's not political in terms of any kind of particular program, but it also subject, subjects all of our human politics to God's good reign of justice and mercy because we can see all of them in that light as not measuring up to God's kingdom. But if this is such good news, how do we make sense of the rest of this passage? I don't know if you caught the little shift that happened in there, if you were listening or you're, you're reading along. All right, this seems like good news, then we should all be really excited about it, right? Isn't that how we should receive this? And if you're looking for a, a way to get to be really popular, you know, maybe become an influencer or something, Jesus is not a good model. So he's just given us this awesome mic drop moment. Everyone's in awe. The son of Joseph? Is he the Messiah? They're in wonder. But look what Jesus says to them. This is his response uh, in verse 23. He says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Maybe referring to some of the miracles and stuff. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. So how do they go from, oh, Jesus, our, 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 our family, our friend, this one we love, and oh, look, you're becoming famous and important. Oh, this is great. To wanting to murder him, <laughs> to trying to murder him. We see this theme all throughout the Gospels, that what is good news for some is not so good news for others. And even in Isaiah 61, I think, I think we can guess that they probably would have, just hearing it over and over again, would have known the rest of the passage. 
the next, the very next verse says that he has come to proclaim, and it says, and the day of vengeance of our God. So this, this promised salvation is sort of this, this double-edged sword. On one side, it's salvation, but it comes at a cost. All right, how do, you, how do you free the oppressed without judging the, the oppressor? Right? You, you can't have one without the other. And we often want one of those things. We want the good news, but we don't see the cost at which it comes. And so Jesus says, he says this in John 9, he says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. There's a sifting, a dividing that goes on throughout Jesus' ministry of this question of who is in and who is out. See, his family and friends are thinking, well, of course he's on our side, right? He's our guy. Jesus is our king. Not those people over there, right? We'll call down fire on the Samaritans. We don't need them. We'll overthrow the Romans. We don't like them. He's our king. But it's not really who you'd expect ends up on the inside and who gets left out. This happens throughout. Uh, Luke even brings this up a number of points. In Luke 8, it says, Then his mothers and his brothers came to him. His mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. Ancient Near East, familial obligations. He's got to respect his mother. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's who is my family. And of course, Jesus loves his mother <laughs> and his family, but, but he, he's setting up this, this distinction. Saying that those who are in are those who receive the gospel, and those who are out are those who reject it. Just a little bit further down in that same chapter, it says uh, in verse 29, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Uh, so if tax collectors are you know, hated by uh, most people in society at this point because they're seen as collaborators with the oppressors. And the Pharisees, the religious people, are, and their scribes are grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Luke 14, Jesus gives this parable. He's at another dinner party. One of those who reclined at table with him heard these things. And he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And of course, this man is thinking, oh, well, that sounds great. I'm going to be part of this. this I'm going to be included. <clears throat> but verse 16, Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his, servants, his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. First said to him, I bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there's room. 
And the master said to the servant, go to the highways and the hedges. Compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to him, said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This good news is good news for those on the outside, those on the margins, the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed. But you see, this includes all of us in one way or another. We're all blind to our own sin and the ways we hurt the people around us, the ways we've rejected God. We're all captive to that sin. We serve it as our master. That we are poor, regardless of how wealthy we think we are materially, we are poor and desperate and needy. But our problem is that we don't know that. We don't know that we're blind. We don't know that we're poor. We don't know that we are held captive. But the thing is, those who are blind, they know it. Right? They, they know that they can't see and that they need someone to help them. Those who are held in captivity or being oppressed, they know. And they know they need someone to come and deliberate them and set them free. And those who are poor know that they can't make it on their own. They can't afford it. They need someone to help them. And this is why we see so many of those who are on the outcasts, on the margins of society, are the ones coming to Jesus, responding his faith, willing, being willing to leave everything to follow him. While those in the center of power in society, who have the influence, who have the, who have the resources, they're turning away. Or, or they're the ones trying to push him over the cliff and ultimately put him on a cross. And so this good news is not some kind of religious system or even some kind of self-help strategy, social program. It's God himself. That in Jesus, the Messiah, we have God himself giving himself to the world. But that world rejects him. In John chapter 1, John says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The cost of God coming to free us from our sin is the cross, where the good creator of the universe is murdered by his own creatures in what is his greatest expression of, of self-giving love. And then he's raised up to reign as that Messiah king. Not, not the king they were expecting, the king of, of Israel or but the king of the whole universe. But he doesn't reign as some kind of tyrant, lording it over those underneath him. But he reigns as the lamb who was slain, the God who gives himself to the world. And so, as you're hearing this good news this morning, that Jesus is the Christ, we can see there are two ways to respond. Right? You can say, I don't need that. I'm my own Lord and Master. I'm already free. Or you can recognize 
your blindness. You can recognize the cap- your captivity to your own sin and cry out to say, Jesus, I need you to set me free. You are the only Lord and Savior. You're the only one who can rescue me from my sin. And if that's you this morning, then I would encourage you to, to maybe as you're realizing that right now, just realizing I, I am blind. I am in captivity. I am poor. And I need a good king to come and save me and set me free. If you have had that experience, you're here and you're, and you're a Christian and you've, you've had that experience of seeing, I, I just, I, I am broken. I am a sinner. I'm not good enough. But you've seen that Christ is your hope and your only hope. Then this is good news to you. This is good news that he is the king on the throne. And so my encouragement to you is to go and proclaim it. To go tell the world that, hey, there's good news. Not that we've got a great president or that the, the society's all going to work out or that Know that, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King, and therefore we can live in hope. But finally, that this doesn't just affect some kind of abstract spiritual reality. Right? But Jesus' kingship affects everything. And God is working in all aspects of his creation to bring about that redemption. And so even though this, this ultimate uh, captivity is to our sin, that sin affects everything in our lives. And God is bringing restoration. If any of you have been a Christian, you'll see it in your own life, right? The ways in which God has set you free and it's changed your life, right? You're not the same person you were anymore. You're learning how to love people that you didn't think you would ever love. You're learning how to treat people in a way you never thought you could. And so we should take this not as just something out there, but as something that affects everything we do. And so we should take this as an opportunity to see how can we bring that good news into every part of our lives? How can we work to alleviate the the real suffering and oppression and poverty and things that we see in the world? Because those are elements of sin that have broken and corrupted and twisted our world. And we want to see God redeem and heal those things. And so go out and get get your hands dirty. (laughs) Right? Jesus went and sat with these people and ate with these people and healed them and, and lived with them. And, right? He went out in the midst to those on the margins to be good news to those on the margins. So go out to the margins and take the good news that Jesus is there with them on the margins. Because this is that good news, is that God stepped off of his throne and came out to be one of the outcasts to be rejected by society, to those who were his own, and to be cast aside and ultimately hung on a cross. And so the beauty of the gospel is that every single one of us is welcomed to the table. Whatever, wherever you're at, in your sin or your brokenness or your weakness, you're saying, man, I, I... why would, why would Jesus want to hang out with me? <laughs> That's who Jesus came for. He became one of us so that we could come and be with him. And he did that by giving his life, ultimately dying on the cross for our sins. And so he takes, 
and the bread. He's there with his disciples the night before, about to be betrayed by one of his close friends. He takes the bread and he breaks it. He says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And similarly, he takes the cup and says, this is my blood poured out for you. And so this banquet feast is opened because of Christ to all uh, to be welcomed in. And that's the hope that we have to look forward to is in this new creation, when God finally fully realizes this kingdom that's been inaugurated with Christ and he makes all things new, that we're going to have the wedding feast of the Lamb. And all those who have been on the outside will be brought into the table to eat with God at his table. And so that's the invitation to you this morning if you're a Christian to come to the table as brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters of the living God because of what Christ has done for you. If you were here and you're not a Christian, then I would invite you right now to just remain in your seat to think about this. Say, who, who do I think Jesus is? Have you really wrestled through that question? And maybe begin to see him this morning as that Messiah, as your only hope to set you free from your sin. During this time, some of us will be at the back. We'd love to pray with you. You can come on back to pray. Uh, pray with us. And we'll be at the back. And uh, I'm going to pray and invite the communion servers up. And if you haven't been here before, we're going to make two lines right here and come forward and receive the bread and the cup. Let's pray. Father, we praise you as the glorious Lord over all things, the one who made all things, Lord. We thank you for sending your Son to set us free from our sin by becoming uh, captive himself to death, death on a cross, but then rising again and conquering and defeating that sin and death so that we may too be set free in Christ. Lord, would we receive that as good news this morning? Would it fill our hearts with joy to live under the kingship of Jesus and his reign? And Lord, would we take that to the, the ends of the earth? And we pray this in the matchless and glorious name of Jesus. Amen.